Okay, welcome to day 183 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 438 through chapter 6 verse 23, and then Psalm 79, and finally Acts 21 verse 27 through 22 verse 22. When we pick up with Elisha in 2 Kings 4 today, uh, we really are now seeing his his ministry of signs exceeding that of his predecessor, Elijah. Remember that when, after they had uh, crossed the Jordan, the thing that Elisha had asked of Elijah is that a double portion of the spirit that rested on him would be on him. Now, one thing that I want to um, comment on, and I feel like I've dropped this a couple times, uh, this idea uh, as as we've walked through the Elijah and Elisha narratives, but but I think it's important uh, for a couple different discussions that we might have as Christians. And this is the idea that we can sometimes get the false impression that in the Bible you just have um, extraordinary miracles going on all over the place, and it's it's just miracles from cover to cover. And to an extent, certainly there are a lot of events that we might call supernatural, extraordinary works of God. Um, so that's not to deny that miracles are, that the scripture is shot through with miracles. But the places where you really get um, like a large concentration of them uh, tends to be in three places. The Exodus, the Elijah and Elisha narratives, and the events surrounding the life of Jesus and his resurrection and, uh, you know, the apostles in Acts. Now, that's, again, not to say that miracles don't occur in the Bible elsewhere, but you really get a, um, a thick concentration of them in these places. And the thing that all three of these have in common is that these are crucial points in redemptive history where God's people have to really understand that um, uh, they're at a crossroads and re- and revelation is happening here, not there. Okay, so when they come out of Exodus, they're obviously the the people of Israel are being formed as a nation. They're being formed as a pe- or perhaps we should say as a people. And they need to know that God is speaking through Moses, that he is the vessel of God's revelation, um, and they're being called out to believe something different than the people around him. Likewise, when you get to the New Testament, obviously, and the Son of God has come, and then the apostles are going out and spreading the gospel, uh, you need to know, people need to know that this is where God is speaking. God has now acted decisively in this way, and if you want to be, just like with the Exodus, if you're going to be, say, on God's side, if you are going to be in the truth, you need to go this way rather than that way. And um, and then, likewise, now in the in the stories that we're at in the Elijah and Elisha narratives, it is very decisively, you need to listen to God's prophets, because the people who are supposed to be um, in charge of the religion of your nation, uh, that is, the, the kings and the priests, have gone astray and are actively endorsing the worship of foreign deities. 
Again, this is not to say that miracles and signs do not take place in other places and times in the biblical storyline, uh, nor is it to deny that uh, that point, the, the point that the, these signs reinforce, uh, is not being made at other places in the Bible. The idea is that it is simply more so that it is happening in these three places than it is happening in the other places. God wants people everywhere to know that you need to listen to this, not that. That's kind of the idea. So we really see this going now in full force in the Elisha narratives here. And in today's reading, his ministry of signs and miracles is exceeding that of Elijah. So first, we see that he is with the uh, the sons of the prophets, this prophetic guild, if you will. There is a famine in the land, and they're trying to fend for themselves, and one of the guys decides to make a stew out of some herbs and uh, gourds, some kind of fruit that he finds, and uh, and it turns out that the fruit is bad in some way. When when he cooks it, they say there's death in the pot. So here, the you know, we finally found food and, and we can't eat it. And so Elisha has them uh, bring flour. He throws it into the pot and it makes it so that the, it is edible and there is no harm in the pot, as it says in verse 41. Then you have this incident where a man comes bringing 20 loaves of barley and some uh, fresh ears of grain in his sack, and they've got um, a, hun- a hundred prophets, is the number that were given there, who need to eat. And, um, and there's concern initially that uh, Elisha's servant brings to him that this isn't going to be enough. Um, presumably this servant would have been this guy Gehazi, whom we've met. And he says, well, give it to them so that they can eat. And they eat, and they it's enough for all of them. Uh, they ate and had some left, according to the word of Yahweh. Uh, this, of course, uh, one can't help but think of Jesus's feeding of the multitudes, which in some way uh, clearly seems to be patterned off of this, uh, um, an amping up of, of that. Of course, the numbers with Jesus are, are much higher. Then in chapter 5, um, we have this narrative about uh, that has strikes on this other theme that we see in these narratives of Elijah and Elisha, where there is an emphasis on the uh, the missional aspect of the Old Testament, where people outside of Israel are cared for by God, and His goodness and blessing is extended beyond the bounds of Israel. And here, not only is it a foreigner, but it's a foreigner who's who's opposed to Israel. Now, of course, Israel is kind of backwards right now in terms of their allegiance to the Lord, and they'll remain backwards for the remainder of their existence, that is, the northern kingdom. And uh, But this is Naaman the Syrian, who is the commander of um, apparently Ben-Hadad, although he's not called Ben-Hadad here, uh, you know, Ben-Hadad II, who um, has been at war a lot with the kings of Israel. And um, so he's got leprosy. And in one of the raids that he conducted, um, a girl was taken from Israel as a slave and is a slave in his house. So, so she's serving his wife. And she says to her, her mistress, 
would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman gets word of this, and you can imagine this guy has probably gone through a lot of different things um, in in his land with, with the prophets of uh, Aram and had no success. And so he hears of this and sees a possibility and, and speaks to his king, speaks to Ben-Hadad, who again is not named here, and uh, and and he is given permission to go to the king of Israel with this enormous gift, uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing um, to essentially pay for the prophet's services. This is kind of commonplace with uh, non-Israelite prophets to pay for the pr- for prophetic services. Uh, you might recall that way back in Numbers when we looked at the or the Balaam oracles, when Balak wanted him to give um, this this curse this curse against Israel, we're told that the elders of Moab and Midian came with the fees for divination. So he comes with um, with this enormous gift, and the king of Israel he comes to the king. Because the way that he assumes that it is, is uh, is that the, the prophet is totally on the page with the king, and he's going to, of course, be in the court or whatever. But what he doesn't know is that there's this strained relationship between um, the king of Israel, who at this time would presumably be Jehoram, um, although, again, he's not named, and Elisha. But the king, when he hears this, he he tears his garments and he says, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So he thinks so he thinks that this may even be some kind of scheme now that that is going to instigate uh, a military conflict in some way between uh, his kingdom and Aram, which he does not seem to want at this time. And so Elisha hears of this, and he sends to the king and tells him, have him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And there is, of course, a little bit of, perhaps we might call it irony here, where that is exactly what the Israelites, and especially the king, need to know and acknowledge as well. So Naaman comes uh, with his horses and his chariots, comes to Elisha's house, and we once again see Elisha communicating by means of a messenger. So he sends sends a messenger, telling him to go wash in the Jordan River seven times, um, and that his flesh will be restored and he shall be clean. And this actually angers Naaman because he's like, "Is this this is not what I came here for?" Um, I I thought that uh, that this guy was going to give me something that worked, and he's just telling me to go wash in a river. Um, in fact, the Jordan River is, uh, I think the idea is supposed to be that it is much less impressive than the, than the rivers of, a, of, of Damascus, the, uh, the Abana and the Par, uh, Farpar. So it's unclear what is meant by the Farpar River here. The Abana is probably a river called the Amana but he is uh, very disappointed about this. Why did I come all this way if he was just going to go tell me to to wash in a river? I, I could have stayed in Aram and done that. But uh, his servants kind of urge him to do this. This is a great word, my father, that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And so he does. He goes down. He washes seven times. 
and according to the word of the man of God, there's that kind of key right there, uh, his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child, and he becomes clean. And he comes back, and what we see here is essentially what, what amounts to him converting to Yahvism, his acknowledgement of the God of Israel, of Yahweh, and not only that, but almost what 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 seems very close to, if not like totally all in, uh, with monotheism. Uh, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Uh, and um, so he tells him, I, I mean, first of all, he tries to get him to accept the gift he's brought, but but again, Elisha will not receive it from him. And um, even even though he urges him, and he tells them, okay, well, if not, then let me bring back two mule loads of earth, and from now on, I'm not going to offer any burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. So just to kind of underscore how much regard he now has for Israel, for the fact that there is no god but the god in Israel, um, he wants to take part of Israel back with him, and he's only going to sacrifice now to Yahweh. And, uh, but he understands that his, his kind of position in life is going to require him to be in compromising situations. And so he says, in this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master, presumably the king, goes into the house of his god, Ramon, uh, to worship there. Um, and I and I have to bow myself in the house of Ramon. Um, please, please let let Yahweh forgive me for for doing that, if and when I have to do that. And Elisha uh, tells him, "Go in peace." He you know he sees this as as this man genuinely turning to the Lord. And I think it's important to remember here that Jesus, um, early on in the Gospel of Luke, when he's uh, at Nazareth and he's speaking in the synagogue there, cites this episode as well as the episode of the widow of Zarephath as evidence for God's care for people outside of Israel. And remember, he is, he is almost killed for it. So, uh, Naman then is on his way back, and Gehazi decides, hey, you know what, Elisha didn't want to take anything from him, but I see a little bit of an opportunity here to gain something for myself. And so he goes out, he goes after him, and um, obviously it would be very shady if he was like, you know what, Elisha decided to change his mind. So he comes up with this, um, basically this bold-faced lie, and he says, hey, my master sent me to you to say there's some uh, people who have come from the hill country and uh, I need a talent of silver and two cha- changes of clothing. And so obviously that's less than than the full gift that Naaman had brought, but he's try- still trying to get something for himself here and uh, behind Elisha's back and lying. And Naaman is more than happy to give him this. And when he returns, he comes in, stands before his master, and Elisha just automatically knows what has happened. Uh, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he's like, your servant went nowhere. And, uh, and, And he confronts him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards? 
sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. And he tells him, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So essentially Gehazi is now going to switch places with Naaman, Naaman being now a faithful worshiper of the Lord and Gehazi having been unfaithful. Um, And uh, it says that Gehazi then went out of Elisha's presence as a leper, white as snow. Then we have another short episode where um, the the sons of the prophets need to build a larger residence to to house them, and so they're collecting wood by the Jordan for it, and they're all kind of like hewing trees, and one of the axe heads there uh, falls into the water, and the, the guy is like, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And so Elisha comes over, and much like he threw, some, threw the flour into the pot of stew, he throws a stick in where the axe head had fallen in, and the iron of it floats. So there's another one of these, these signs. And then when we come to verse 8, we see one that is not on this small personal level. Even the one with Naaman was, was uh, pretty, uh, it was international. He's an important figure, but it's an individual. Now we see something on a much larger scale. And this, of course, is uh, during a conflict between, once again, Aram, um, presumably Damascus, uh, uh, Ben-Hadad here, warring against Israel. Um, it's unclear exactly when this is taking place um, in, in relation to a lot of these other events, uh, especially the way, like if you look at the way the ESV translates verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. That, to me, is a little bit of an over-translation of the Hebrew, which just kind of simply says, now the king of Syria was warring against Israel. Um, but the the point is, I think, captured by the English Standard Version there, that this is, it's kind of ambiguous when this was happening. But whenever it was, um, they run into this issue where Elisha is able to warn the king as to where the Syrian army is at any given time, to the extent where he thinks there is a traitor in his ranks who is informing the king of Israel. And they figure out that it is actually Elisha who is doing this, and so they actually go on offensive against Elisha himself and surround the city where he is. And the servant of Elisha, who, if this event is chronologically after uh, the Naaman event, is presumably not Gehazi anymore, but again, because it's it's ambiguous as to when it happened, it, it may actually have happened uh, before the thing with Naaman, which w- w- might make sense if, if we are stuck up on the idea of how Naaman could have come back healed from his leprosy, and then sometime after that, he and the king of Israel, uh, the king of Syria, rather, um, then move militarily against Israel, right? You would think that that might the, uh, do something to improve the relations between these two nations. Uh, but it's unclear. But whoever the servant is uh, comes to Elisha and is very concerned about this. And Elisha then uh, prays to the Lord that um, the servant might see. And he opens his eyes and he sees that the mountains are, are, are full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Uh, this, of course, is reminiscent of Elijah being taken up by uh, by chariots of fire when they had uh, when he transferred his ministry to Elisha and was 
taken up into the heavens. And so the idea, of course, is that um, although we don't see it, God is here all around us protecting his people whom he loves. Elisha then prays that the, uh, that the army of the Arameans would be struck with blindness, and they are, and he's able to lead them uh, into Samaria. So he takes them away, says, this is not the city where, that you're looking for. I'll take you to the man whom you seek, and he brings them in, into Samaria. And I'm not sure exactly how we, need, how we should be envisioning this. Um, I note that the text does not tell us how many had come to take Elisha. It doesn't. That doesn't seem like something like like the king of Aram would send his entire army for that. He probably just sent a troop or something. Uh, but he brings he brings the men who had come after him into Samaria, and um, then prays for God to open up their eyes. And so, of course, now the king of Israel has them, and uh, he tells them. Uh, Elisha though, tells him not to strike them down. He says, would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Instead, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he does this, and um, they send them away, and uh, and that causes the Syrians to withdraw, the Arameans to withdraw, and to and to stop raiding the land of Israel. And so what we get is a refreshingly peaceful message that even here in the Old Testament, where certainly violence and warfare is a common occurrence, um, that if God's people trust him and walk according to his commandments and worship him and him alone, that he is able to protect them in such a way that they don't even need to use violence against their enemies, and they can live according to a surprisingly Christ-like ethic where we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, here, the, the king of Aram is won over by this visible, consistent evidence, number one, that there's a, there's a God in Israel, and number two, that he has been shown an act of kindness by the leadership of Israel. Okay, now let's go over to Psalm 79. Psalm 79 is a psalm that deals with this problem of suffering, and there's many different ways to kind of address the question of if God is good and if he is powerful, then why is there, why is there suffering in this world? Right, we, we can address it on kind of a philosophical level, and uh, certainly Job does this in a certain way. Many other places in the Bible do address this issue. Um, but one angle of coming at it is through the emotional turmoil that it puts people through. Because unlike some of the other, let's say, objections to God or complaints of, against God that we might have, this is one that touches all of us in a very personal and experiential way, right? We're actually hurt. We actually weep. And how do we deal with that? And here is a picture of a, the psalmist go, of, of a psalmist going through this. Uh, the The setting of this is apparently after Jerusalem is eventually destroyed, which of course we haven't gotten to yet in the uh, in the Book of Kings, um, because it, it begins. Uh, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. 
They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to beasts of the earth. They've poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And then you have um, what it might be looked at as kind of the central statement of the psalm. How long, O Yahweh, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? There is an acknowledgement here that that this was indeed brought on by Israel's sin. But given that his people have been humbled and that there are faithful who have turned to him um, in response to this punishment, how long are you going to be angry with your people? How long are things going to be like this between us and God? And then we see, beginning in verse 6, this desire for God to judge those who have so mistreated his people. And this is an important point of theology, especially the theology of the Old Testament, um, that as we have seen many times in Scripture so far, God uses the ev- even the evil intentions of human beings to accomplish his purposes. And so the prayer is, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Why? Because they've devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So even though you use them as an instrument of your anger against us, of, of your wrath and your judgment, they are still accountable. And so how long until this next phase of what you are doing in this world is going to take place, and those who have mistreated us will be held accountable for their sin? So there's that concern, but then again it goes back to the idea of forgive us. Don't remember our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily uh, to meet us. This, of course, is something that is prayed in repentance. Um, uh, For we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. Uh, And and why? Uh, Because we deserve it? Because, no, for the glory of your name, right? For your name's sake, atone for our sins. There's one of these uses of the word atone that doesn't have to do explicitly with sacrifice. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So they are, they are appealing to the Lord's renown throughout the world. They're appealing to this missional intent of the Old Testament that the Lord would be known to all nations and be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And if, as a result of your judgment upon us, you become known as this vengeful God who doesn't do anything against the, those who harmed the, his covenant people, what will become of your great name? This is very similar, of course, to how Moses interceded for Israel at Mount Sinai after the golden calf. You know, what will the Egyptians say that you led us out of Egypt just to kill us in the wilderness? So there is an appeal to God's nature, to his goodness, to his, and to his um, desire for glory among all the nations that he saves and he forgives and he redeems his people and he lifts them out of the dust so that his glory and his goodness would be known. And so this is essentially a prayer that that might happen. But the psalm ends in verse 13, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. And, And that is a commitment to do this even in the 
how long phase of suffering, right? We are going to praise you even during our time in exile, even during our time of sorrow. Um, We know that we are the ones who are in the wrong, and we know that despite what has happened, you are still good and worthy of our praise, and that our prayer, how long, will not go unanswered forever. Okay, let's go over now to Acts chapter 21, picking up in verse 27. Remember that Paul, at the urging of James, has gone into the temple and has uh, has aided two men, uh, two Christian men, in their purification for the payment or the, the completion of some vows that they have taken. And when he is there, when he's almost done, right, seven days in, he is seen from some uh, people, some Jewish people who are from Asia, and remember Paul spent a considerable time in Asia, perhaps what is meant here is Ephesus, and, uh, and, and they recognize Paul and identify him as a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And one can't help remember uh, the charges brought against Stephen, right? He's teaching against the law and this place, and now here, the people, the law, and this place. And then there's what seems to be a false accusation. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. The bringing of Gentiles into the temple is strictly prohibited. There was even a plaque that prohibited them from going beyond the court of the Gentiles, and that uh, crime of profaning the temple is some—a temple is something that is worthy of death. And so this crowd is stirred up. He's seized, dragged out of the temple. <clears throat> the gates are shut, presumably to present, pre- prevent further um, defilement. And as soon as this mob forms, the Roman soldiers who are in charge of, um, who have have a garrison in Jerusalem, come, and their commander is there, who later in chapter twenty three is identified as a guy named Claudius Lucius. And so they come down. And uh, they stopped. They stopped Paul from being beaten. And you could just imagine this, right? Like he's uh, he's being jumped. He's being attacked physically, punched. All of that. Uh, anybody who's ever been through that, I I was through that when I was in high school. Um, this is a frightening scene, right? And and they stopped this from happening. And um, and Paul is then arrested. He's taken because they got to figure out what what's happened. So he's seized, put into custody. Um, there's all this confusion. Some are shouting one thing, some another. He can't make out what's going on, and so he he brings him to the barracks to try to bring some level of of sanity here. And things are so nuts that the the soldiers actually have to have to carry Paul, and um, they get him far enough away, and Paul then. Dis, um, makes the effort to speak to the people. And so he says something to the tribune, Claudius, and um, and apparently in Greek. So may I say something to you, he asks. And the the um, tribune answers, do you know Greek? Are, are, are you not an Egyptian then and, uh, the, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? So something about what's happened here makes him think that he's this guy that has caused this trouble. Interestingly, this is also mentioned by the first century Jewish historian Josephus. The numbers are a little bit different, but it sure sounds very similar. 
The guy was basically a uh, a false prophet who led people in an attempt to uh, to assault Jerusalem, and he was repulsed. So maybe the idea here, if this is the same guy that that uh, 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 Claudius is thinking of here, maybe the idea is that he's he's now returned. Um, but no, uh, Paul replies, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So there he's, he's talking about, you know, Tarsus is a respectable Hellenistic city. I'm, I'm not some crazy guy, some crazy religious zealot or something like that. And, and so he's given permission to address the people. So he begins speaking to the people, uh, in the Hebrew language, it says, which, uh, is uh, what is likely meant by that is probably Aramaic, and um, and he and just having been beaten up by them, he's addressing them in respectful and affectionate terms, brothers and fathers. He calls them. Uh, hear the defense that I now make before you, and they hear that he's addressing in Aramaic and uh, you know their own language, their own tongue, and they 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 become quiet. And so he recounts his testimony and um, basically beginning with this, this emphasis about how, look, I once was exactly where you were. Um, I once felt the same way and even more so, right? I was brought up, I was born in Tarsus, brought up in this city and educated at Gama- the feet of Gamaliel. Remember Gal- Gamaliel all the way back uh, when some when the apostles had been arrested, had spoken up in their favor. He's this, um, you know, a well-respected teacher of the law. Um, he's the guy who educated Paul. And uh, Paul's like, look, I was brought up according to the strict manner of our fathers. I was zealous for God, as you are all this day. I, I persecuted this way. Um, I... Um, you know, I did all of this stuff with the idea, basically, like, I once cared about what you care about now. And to an extent, this is the very thing that led me to being who I am today, because I care so much about uh, God and so much about the law and so much about his commandments. This is actually what has led me to Jesus. Um, And not only that, but what happened to me. And so then he goes and he recounts the story of his conversion. And so he's on his way to Damascus, and he, um, he, a, a light from heaven shines around him when, when he's there with the intent of persecuting the Christians there, and he encounters Jesus on the road. And I won't recount all the details there, except to say that there is something of a bit of a discrepancy that is sometimes pointed out here, where in verse 9, he says that those who were with him saw the light but did not um, uh, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to him. And the, the issue here is that back in chapter 9 verse 7, when Luke is telling the story is telling the story and Luke's the guy who's writing this, right? So obviously he knows what he wrote. Um, but back then he, he tells us that they did hear the voice but saw no one. So here in this verse if he says, he, they did not hear the voice, um, what gives, right? Did they hear the voice or didn't they? Here it says they didn't, there it says they did. And you can see that the English Standard Version even tries to kind of pave over that because um, it it translates here, not, it, it translates in this verse, in verse 9, that they did not understand the voice, but the word is actually here, it's akuo. So that's a bit of an interpretation. Uh, 
the, the one solution to this that has been offered is the fact that the grammatical construction in the two verses is a little bit different. For those of you who might have a little bit of Greek, uh, in chapter 9 he uses the genitive as the object of the verb, and here he uses the accusative. Um, and so, you know, perhaps the meaning is slightly different uh, with them, uh, which is a possibility, but doesn't—a lot of commentators don't go that way because the evidence isn't that clear that there really is a distinction between those. Um, the, the difference is probably actually in the, the wording that can be easily seen in English, that here he says, the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So there they hear something, they hear a sound, phone in Greek can mean uh, sound and voice, um, but, and here he's, but here he specifically means the, like the words that are coming out of the risen Christ's mouth. Uh, I think that's probably the, the, the solution here. At either, either rate, I think it's just important to acknowledge that Luke wrote both of these and it's very unlikely that he would have seen a, condi- a con- contradiction between these two things. So, at any rate, Paul is uh, sharing with them uh, this whole event. He, he shares with them about being led by a hand into Damascus, and then encountering Ananias there through whom he received his sight. And then you have this expanded version of what is said to him about his mission— uh, that the God of our fathers, and this would be Ananias telling him this um, through the Lord, has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, and now he will be a witness. And he tells him, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There we have the whole kind of salvation package, right, where this turning, decisive turning and belief in Jesus um, entails this act of baptism as well. This is the way that the early Christians in the New Testament speak of conversion. They can speak because baptism is this um, is this thing that Christians do upon conversion that is often given as like the marker of when you turn from darkness to light. Um, he then uh, returns to Jerusalem. Uh, he's praying in the temple. Again, I'm, I I go straight to the temple. I'm not against this place. I'm worshiping. In fact, uh, the ironic thing about Paul's situation here in Acts 22, he's in the temple participating in purification rituals. Like, it's not, he's clearly not against the, you caught me and seized me while I was doing the thing you're saying that I'm teaching people not to do. And so... And they're all listening to him about this testimony, right? They're they're tracking with him. Uh, they're even tracking with him. He mentions how he was the one who oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr of Stephen. But then when he says what Jesus, what Jesus had told him, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, that's what does it. That's what turns them once again against him. It says up to this word, they listen to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And again, how far they have strayed from the actual message of God in their own scriptures is, is palpable, uh, even as we saw today with God uh, reaching out to Naaman the Syrian. Obviously, God cares for Gentiles and wants to bring them uh, his ultimate plan is to make them his people as well. And the fact that Paul's contemporaries don't see this 
is the reason why they are so vehemently against him now. All right, well, that's it for today. As always, thank you for being with me. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.